1: outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry
0: that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present their roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from
1: there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Corr. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Paul Offit. He is here today to talk about his book, Bad Advice, or why celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best sources of health information. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I'm trained in pediatrics, but um, spent most of my time in a basic science laboratory um, doing virology and immunology and was fortunate enough um, to participate with a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that ultimately created the uh, strains, the so-called bovine human reassortant rotavirus strains that became the vaccine uh, attack in 2006, which was licensed and recommended for all children in this country then and then by the World Health Organization for all children in the world in 2013. So I guess in my heart, I'm a basic scientist
1: what inspired you to write bad advice
0: well i think now more than ever um it seems that people are simply declaring their own truths so Vaccines cause autism. Uh, creationism and evolution are equally valid hypotheses. Climate change is real. And I think that the, the best people to address those concerns are scientists. But unfortunately, uh, speaking as one, I can tell you that uh, my training as a scientist in many ways was the opposite of the training that you need to do to, I think, try and be convincing um, And and Passionate and compassionate with the, with the public, and so that's why. I mean, a, 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 another more reasonable title, frankly, for the book could be uh, "How to How to um, How to Communicate Science to the Public or Die Trying."
1: <laughs> well, one thing I find interesting is for me, and I think a lot of people out there, it's common sense. You know, I'm not going to get my my health advice from a celebrity or or a politician or anything like that. That seems silly. So. But for a lot of people, that's unfortunately not the case. Well, I mean, you know, they don't
0: pick scientists to sell products. You know, if you look, for example, at at a variety of products on television, variably it's celebrities that sell them, even though they presumably have no specific uh, um, training or education on that particular product. But the point is they're a familiar face. They're a face that you've come to trust because you've seen them on the big screen in the movies or on the little screen on television. And so you think you know them. I mean, when Jim Carrey, for example, is on television, you think you know him based on the roles that he's played, even though he will have no specific expertise often on what he's he's talking about, as he did when he was on Larry King Live disparaging vaccines. Still, he becomes an important voice because you think you know him.
1: The first chapter in your book discusses what is and what isn't science. You talk about how some people who say you can't trust science, science gets it wrong all the time, uh they they can provide examples of times when science has or when scientists have been wrong, such as with lobotomies or cold fusion uh you say though that it is reasonable to be skeptical of scientists but unreasonable to be skeptical of the scientific process. Can you please talk about this for our listeners and share how it relates to uh, your discussion with Senator tom harkin
0: Sure I mean science is is a process whereby you're constantly probing nature, trying to understand nature, and and not shockingly, there's always fits and starts in that understanding. And occasionally, you may have a hypothesis, which you think you've, you've uh, supported with data, but then others are unable to reproduce that. That's the nature of the scientific process. We we learn as we go. So you're right. I mean, Igaz Moniz was a Portuguese neurologist who, in 1935, won the Nobel Prize for what he called leucotomy, what he believed was a surgical cure for a variety of psychiatric illnesses, and went across the Atlantic Ocean. It was called lobotomy. And we did 20,000 lobotomies in the United States and did far more harm than good. And I think, you know, people will look at stories like that and say, see, you can't trust science. I, I think an even better story, the more relevant story is Ansel Keys, who in 1957 put forward what he called the heart healthy diet at the center of which was margarine. He believed that animal fats were bad because they were were saturated and we needed unsaturated fats like partially hydrogenated vegetable oils that were contained in margarine, which were loaded with trans fats. And as we now know retrospectively, probably accounted for as many as 250,000 cardiovascular uh, negative events a year until we eliminated uh, trans fats because we learned what they could do to bad cholesterol, so-called very low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. And people say, see, this guy was an advisor to, to... the united nation he he was a, a major player in the world of nutrition and he was dead wrong and that's right but the point is we ultimately learned that he was wrong and that's the way science works i, I think for me the the uh, the um episode you're talking about with tom harkin um i went with a group of of people including betty bumpers who was the wife of uh, senator dale bumper's to, and, as well as Amy Pisani, who's a group called Every Child by Two, to talk to Tom Harkin, a, a popular uh, Democrat from Iowa, right, your home state, where um, he whereby he wanted to sort of put aside a lot of money, actually, to try and look to see whether vaccines, as they were currently given, cause permanent brain damage. It, 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 the fact was many studies like that had already been done. Two, biologically, it was implausible. Um, and three, it just didn't seem like a very good use of money, uh, for, for, for this particular purpose. So, so I was there to kind of try and educate him about the studies that were done as we were leaving. He, he, I was the last to leave the office and he, he, he wouldn't let go of my hand. He kept holding onto my hand and staring into my eyes. And he said, you know, why should I believe you? You know, I've had other people who've come into my office who's told me exactly the opposite of what you've told me. And I said, well, it really doesn't matter what I say. I and mean, the only thing that really matters is what the data show. Um, and, and, but but I, well, by doing that, by saying that, what I was asking him to do was to look at all the studies and, and, and rate, weigh their relative value, something he's unlikely to, to do or, frankly, to have the expertise to do. So he did what most people do. He just wanted to see whether he, whether he could trust me. As it turns out, he did. And he didn't end up setting aside that money, but but I I, I think we won. I think children won in that, that uh, interchange, but the fact is is that that I won for all the wrong reasons. I won because he, he looked I looked like the kind of person he should trust, whereas really it's the data. That the the, and the reproducibility of the data and the robustness of the data that he should trust. So um, it was a little unnerving. And it basically what it taught me is that you know scientists uh, who have uh, who have winning personalities but not necessarily very good data can win over a scientist, for example, who has who's more awkward but has better data. It's unfortunately true that science doesn't speak for itself.
1: Let's talk a bit about this. So, you know, what are some of the stereotypes and struggles scientists deal with when communicating with the public? You say that in spite of these stereotypes and struggles, scientists are indeed good storytellers. Uh, Can you please talk about this for our listeners?
0: Well, um, when you publish a paper... um you submit it to a, a journal, a good journal, and you want them to publish it. In order to do that, you have to, at some level, be a good writer and a good storyteller, that why not only that your data are, are valuable, but, but why they're valuable, Well, how they fit into a larger narrative. Similarly, when you write a grant, and grants are hard to come by from NIH or NSF or wherever you're trying to get money from, um, you have to be able to tell a story more compelling than those who are also seeking this limited amount of funds. So I, I think at some level, we are. Going storytellers, um, you know, when when, you know, unfortunately, the titles for our paper read something like, you know, a molecular basis of rotavirus virulence role of gene segment four, not disco bloodbath, which I think is probably more compelling title. But <laughs> but uh, that said, I, I do think we, we have it in us. I think if you look at, at scientists who are great storytellers like Isaac Asimov or Jacques Cousteau or Galileo or um, Louis Pasteur, those, those, those guys and gals were all good storytellers. Um, I just think we have to sort of channel that inner storyteller that we, I think we all do have.
1: And scientists are also compelled by good stories. Can you talk about what compelled you to work with rotavirus? Sure. I mean,
0: I was a resident in pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh when, um, as a a second-year resident, there was a child who came in who was about nine months old. It was a little girl who had gotten sick the night before with fever and vomiting. She hadn't even really started to have diarrhea yet, which is also um, typical of this particular viral infection, rotavirus. And she was great, the mother. I mean, she was a typical salt-of-the-earth kind of mom who um, who had called the doctor the night before. The doctor had told her to give frequent sips of fluids containing uh, sugar and uh, salt, which she could make at home. And she did all that. She tried to do that. The problem was is that the, the child was vomiting, so she couldn't get the, the, this little girl to hold anything down. By the time she finally came into our hospital, she was severely dehydrated. We tried to get um, an intravenous catheter into her arms or legs, but she was too clamped down because she was so dehydrated so we couldn't find them. Um, what we ended up doing was was taking a, a large-bore needle, the kind of needle you use for a, a bone marrow, and, and put put that into her, her bone in the hopes that we could get fluids into her bone, which would then be resorbed into her circulation, which could save her life, while we called a, a surgeon down to come down and put a catheter into, her, into a vein into her neck, which we were uncomfortable doing. But the time the surgeon got down there was too late. Uh, the little girl had died of, of shock from uh, a critical loss of fluid. We were unable to resuscitate her. And then comes the worst moment you can deal with as a, as a pediatric resident. We had to go walk outside and tell a, a mother uh, of a nine-month-old girl who was perfectly fine uh, two days earlier, that her child had died, and um, that always stuck with me. And I remember going to the library um, that night to look up what was known about rotavirus uh, gastroenteritis, or said another way, rot- the rotavirus how rotavirus uh, causes you know inflammation of the the stomach and small intestines. And the, the title of the paper was "Fatal Rotavirus Gastroenteritis in the United States." And and uh, I had to realize that rotavirus could be fatal in the United States, where in theory access to medicine is much better, and we have, uh, you know, intravenous fluids readily available as distinct from the developing world. And uh, that, that was an image that was always in my mind during the 25 plus years that we were working on a rotavirus vaccine at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia.
1: One of the other things we, you know, we talk about is how science, scientists often think a little bit differently. You know, they're, they're great with their level of expertise in, and they see it in, in areas that other people normally wouldn't. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in the movie Titanic?
0: What he did was he saw that uh, when uh, towards the end of the movie uh, Rose and uh, and Jack were sort of floating, although she was on on uh, she was floating on a, a board and he wasn't. Although I still don't understand quite why he couldn't also fit on that board. But that aside, <laughs> um, when they were looking up at the sky, he realized that that's not what the sky would look like in that hemisphere in that year at that time of, of, of uh, the the uh, seasons. And so he wrote James Cameron, who was the executive producer, to say that that was the raw sky, and ultimately James Cameron, you know, changed that for the 3D version of the movie, but, you know, I mean, how many people watched that movie and thought, wait, that's not what the sky would have looked like in 1912 in that hemisphere, just Neil deGrasse Tyson, but, you know, it just shows you how scientists are largely intolerant of scientific inaccuracies.
1: Can you talk a bit about how scientists can't use the word prove, or the P word, And how has this been misunderstood by the non-scientific community? Uh, Can you include how this has had an effect on the public's understanding of the MMR vaccine and autism?
0: Sure. If you're doing an epidemiological study, Um, You can show whether one thing is associated with another at a certain level of statistical power. So, So here's what I mean. The way that scientists work is they formulate a hypothesis. And specifically in an epidemiological study, it would be the null hypothesis. So in this case, it would be the combination measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine does not cause autism. That's the null hypothesis. You can reject it. Um, which is to say that when autism follows receipt of the MMR vaccine, it would be at a level greater than would be expected by chance alone. You cannot reject the null hypothesis, which means that when autism follows receipt of the MMR vaccine, it would be at a level that would be expected by chance alone. But you can't accept the null hypothesis. You can never prove never. And I think scientists know that. So, for example, I mean, when I uh, was a little boy, I used to watch the television show Adventures of Superman where Superman flew. And and I tried when I was a five-year-old to put a towel around my neck to jump from a small height to see whether I could uh, fly unsuccessfully. Now, I could have tried a million times. That wouldn't have proven I couldn't have flown. It would have only made it all the more statistically unlikely. That's also true here. You can only say that MMR is not associated with autism at a certain level of statistical power. And when I had to testify, actually, in front of Dan Burton's subcommittee when he was head of the Office of uh, Government Reform, Burton was a Republican from Indiana back in the early 2000s, um, I knew, as did the other uh, uh, scientists who were sitting on that panel, that you can't say MMR doesn't cause autism. But, you know, what ended up happening, and it was actually Colleen Boyle, who's an excellent epidemiologist at CDC, who said, you know, all the evidence we have doesn't support the hypothesis that MMR uh, uh, causes autism. But she she couldn't say it, right? She couldn't say MMR doesn't cause autism, which to Dan Burton sounded like she was waffling or worse, like she was covering something up. And he just screamed at her. I mean, I was sitting right next to her when this happened. And, you know, he just screamed at her. So you can't tell me that MMR doesn't cause autism because you just don't know, do you? And, And that's the problem. With us, us as scientists, trying to communicate science to the public and being um, rigorous and faithful to to the scientific method, is I think we have to realize that at some level, how we sound influences how people perceive what we're saying. Which is to say, I think you have to be willing to say MMR doesn't cause autism because it doesn't any more than I can fly—at least not without a plane. So I think uh, we have to get over this.
1: So what you're saying is you're, you're leaving a back door open that you can still fly someday.
0: <laughs> you know, you never know. You
1: definitely do know. So why is the public seduced by celebrity? Why do they listen to the anti-vaccine beliefs of people who are not scientists, but who are instead people like musicians, actors, athletes, etc.?
0: Again, because first of all, they're often trained uh to to be very uh uh interactive with the media they're attractive they're well-spoken i mean if you watch jenny mccarthy on these uh, shows like larry king live or like Oprah winfrey she's the attractive dramatic well-spoken person uh that's that's there uh, often crying when she's talking about uh, what happened to her what she believed happened to her son and, and um you know that's not something you're you're used to competing with uh, as a scientist what you're used to is going to a, a scientific conference whereby you and the other sci- scientists share data and you try and come to some reasonable conclusion based on their data those data that's not what this is about this is politics this is 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 acting and it's something you're not good at and and I think that's where we often fail if you watch for example jenny mccarthy and larry king live and there was one episode where she was on with just such a wonderful pediatrician from north carolina named david taylor who at the time was the president of the american academy of pediatrics and it was it was hard to watch i mean she was uh she was much more vivid, much more dramatic. He was literally really back on his heels trying to deal with, the, with that onslaught. And, and, you know, and so the, the public is, is, I think, convinced by a person who is, is uh, who's used to acting as distinct from the, the pediatrician in this case who isn't.
1: Can you talk a bit about how the public and media struggle to distinguish real experts from fake experts?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think they struggle to distinguish I don't think the public struggles to distinguish real experts from fake experts I think they just look at how the person sounds how they appear the way that they phrase things and to them the person who's the, who says it in the most convincing way is the person who's right uh, I I think that they're not looking deeply to see, it, you know, what that person's background is. Do they have an expertise? Do they have experience? Do they have, have they published on the subject? I don't think they're looking at that. They're just looking at how the person um, positions themselves during during their talk. And that's, that's all that matters. I mean, just, you know, look at the current president of the United States. I mean, he's he at least to some sounds very convincing. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about when obviously for most things he doesn't.
1: What are some of the reasons we might not have touched on already that uh, might cause the public to believe health advice that is just wrong? Uh, Can you talk about things like social media and political leanings?
0: Well, sure. I I think also – you know, you tend to trust people who you know. So, so in the case of celebrities, you believe you know them. In the case of friends and, and chat rooms and social media, uh, you believe that these are the people who who you know, and therefore are more likely to give you um, advice that's that's correct. Um, I do think that there, the 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 degree to which there's a politics to this, I, I, I it's interesting for vaccines because I don't think there is a politics to vaccines. I mean, both sides get it wrong. On, on the right, it's more of a libertarian approach. So government off my back. The thinking is, um, the government doesn't need to tell me whether or not I should inject my child with a, a biological fluid, uh, against my will and my child's will. Um, they don't need to tell me that I will do my own research. I will figure out what's best for my child and what is best for my child will be what's best for society. Where that argument falls apart is that how do you get information? I mean, how are you learning about that vaccine? Uh, if you're if you're choosing not to vaccinate, you're not doing a very good job of educating yourself about vaccines mm-hmm. because vaccines are safe and effective. So you're getting information from where? From the internet, from chat rooms, from other, other sources of social media, which, you know, can be wrong and cause you to make a bad decision for your child that puts not only your child at risk, but those with whom they con- your child comes in contact with at risk. On the left side for, for vaccines, it's more of a... Uh, Kind of all natural bib overall crunchy granola, you know, back to nature thing. And I'm not going to inject my child with, you know, with something that's quote unquote unnatural, which is remarkable to me. I mean, I don't know who Mother Nature's public relations team is, but I got to figure it out so I can hire them. I, I mean, Mother Nature can and will kill you and routinely has the only reason that we live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago is because we fought back against mother nature who you know tries to kill us with viruses tries to kill us with bacteria tries to kill us with unsanitary water i mean would be for which we've made vaccines we've made antibiotics we you know we've, we've uh, have much more sanitary and hygienic water because we fought back against mother nature i don't know why people are so um uh, just uh taken, seduced by this word natural when, at least in my world, which is the world of infectious diseases, natural is the last thing you want.
1: That's one thing I found to be super weird about the anti-vaccine movement, if you will. It's the only issue I can think of where uh you have people on on both like the, the far left and the far right who are on the same page for very different reasons, but they both Uh, You know, I grew up in rural Iowa and then went to University of Iowa, which is, you know, a more liberal town. Um, And I have, you know, friends and stuff that I've known who on Facebook, you know, you see the people on both extremes posting the anti-vaccine articles on social media. And it's it's crazy just how extremely opposite they are. But they both agree on that. It's the only issue I can think of like that.
0: I agree with you. They seem to come together on this issue for for, uh, different reasons. And it's not hard to find like-minded people on the Internet. I think that's one thing the Internet offers as compared to, say, when I was growing up, where um, if you were part of a small, relatively fringe group that in this case uh, wasn't science-based, you'd have trouble finding like-minded people. Now it's not hard at all.
1: Can you talk a bit about uh, focus on the family and the HPV vaccine?
0: Right. I was actually on the advisory committee for immunization practices when we first started to discuss the HPV or human papillomavirus vaccine. And um, the George W. Bush administration actually insisted on having someone represent, focus on the family to be on that committee. Um the, the thinking was, and it's obviously not, again, science-based, the thinking was is that if you give an HPV vaccine, which is a vaccine that prevents a dis- disease that is transmitted really solely by sexual contact, that what you're going to be doing is promoting uh, promiscuous sex. That was the thinking. Um, now, there, there have been studies by Robert Bednarczyk and, and others showing that those who get the HPV vaccine are no more likely to engage in sexual activity as they get older than those who aren't because this is a vaccine that's given to the 11 to 13-year-old at a time before most people have had uh, sex, um, that you're not more likely to be promiscuous, which makes perfect sense. First of all, because the HPV vaccine only prevents against uh, HPV infections, and frankly, not all strains of HPV infections. It certainly doesn't protect against chlamydia, or gonorrhea, or syphilis, or other sexually transmitted diseases like herpes. So, um, so the notion that, that you would then think after getting an HPV vaccine that you could be promiscuous because you were protected against all sexually transmitted diseases was silly, and frankly, as silly as as noting that that you know now that I've gotten my tetanus vaccine, I can run across a bed of you know rusty nails. <laughs> I mean that that's not true either. So it never made sense. Um, but that's where where it was coming from. And frankly, it it uh, that hasn't gone away. If you look at, uh, I mean Betsy DeVos is, is at least at some level connected to focus on the family. And and if you like Pence when he was governor of Indiana, it made it very difficult for his then health commissioner who was who was Jerome Adams, who now is the Surgeon General of the United States, to to uh, have his immunization coordinators promote HPV vaccine for that reason. So uh, I just find that uh, actually outrageous. I mean, Mike Pence, who sets himself up as a religious man, uh, in theory, all religions teach us to care about our children, care about our families, care about our communities. His attempts, frankly, to make it very difficult to give a cancer-preventing vaccine to, uh, to children uh, was a utterly unreligious thing to do, and I, I wish he'd been called on it more than he was.
1: So you've been in the media quite a bit over the years on television, radio, things like that. What are some of the lessons you've learned from your media appearances over the years? (laughs) Well, I can tell you they're all hard earned. (laughs) Yeah. My my media training basically
0: involved being on the media and <laughs> learning how to do this. Um, I guess the, the the obvious ones are that you know you don't have to answer the question exa- exactly as asked. I, that was certainly uh, one of my hardest lessons. I remember it. I was uh, it was at a local Fox News channel in, uh, in Philadelphia in the in the uh, mid nineteen nineties, and uh, you know the 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 other lesson here was I think be comfortable. But I, I was asked to. Um, to, to be on this show. It was, it was September. It was back to school month. I thought this is going to be great. I can educate about vaccines. And But the, the producer didn't want me to actually sit next to the two anchors actually in the studio. She wanted me to be in the newsroom because she thought that would be uh, more vibrant, more interesting. So I didn't actually see the people who were asking me questions. And she gave me an earpiece, which didn't fit particularly well. And everybody was sort of buzzing around in the newsroom, sort of talking and, and laughing. And one guy was screaming. The The cameraman was actually just right in front of my face, just about, four feet away. I was on this high, relatively unstable chair. The 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 uh, the segment after mine was going to be about this uh, legal comedy drama that was based in Boston called Ollie, Ally McBeal, which uh, starred Calista Flockhart. But the, some of the women who were lawyers in that show wore short skirts, which this producer thought was really interesting. So she had four models all in their early 20s standing next to me, each wearing progressively shorter skirts. So I wasn't sure exactly how I could have been any more distracted at that point. I guess it was hard to hear. The the earpiece fell out. The people in the newsroom were sort of loud. Models were talking. And when I put the the earpiece back in after it had fallen out, the, the uh, question was, Dr. Ralph, could you tell us what vaccines children get and when they get them? I mean, that's that's a hard question to answer. You know, there's 10 different vaccines in the mid-1990s. They were all given at different intervals. And I didn't, uh, I I sort of, the the right answer to that question would be children get a variety of vaccines to prevent diseases like hepatitis, meningitis, bloodstream infections. uh, um, And uh, it's important that parents make sure that children get the vaccines that they need, um, the parents make sure that children uh, get the, those vaccines. Um, I didn't give that answer uh, because I was somehow wedded to the notion that you had to answer the question exactly as I asked. So I started to list each vaccine and what the intervals were. I kind of got lost in the middle and eventually uh, just kind of sputtered to an end. And the, the, it was so bad, actually, it was pathetic. I mean, it was so bad that the models uh, stopped talking and stared at me sadly. It's bad. <laughs>
1: And you, So you actually even turned down the opportunity to be on Oprah with Jenny McCarthy.
0: Right. Oprah uh, had, that was actually Jenny McCarthy's entrance into the world of being an anti-vaccine advocate. She was on Oprah, um, who she launched Jenny McCarthy, much as Oprah launched um, Mehmet Oz. Um, right. She asked me to be on that show. And I, I, I made the right decision there. I, I think you, you can't go on a, on a show where the host isn't on your side. Um, Jenny believed that her child's uh, autism was caused by uh, vaccines, although it's not clear her son actually had autism. And, you know, she tells a compelling story on that show. You know, uh, my child was fine. Uh, the doctor, I went to the doctor's office. He pulled out this shot. And I said to him, that's the the autism shot, isn't it? And he said no. And he screamed at me. And then my child got this vaccine. And within within moments, the soul left his eyes, she said, you know, while fighting back tears. And, and although, you know, as a scientist, you think, first of all, nothing works that fast. I mean, you know, it's it's it's, it's vaccines. Certainly don't induce an immune, immune response within moments. Um, there's nothing that would cause one to. How could one even biologically imagine that autism would be caused within moments? Um, and here's all these scientific studies that have shown that MMR uh, doesn't cause autism. Um, but you know that's not what this 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 uh, that's not what Oprah's about. Oprah's there to tell a story. Uh, her story has three roles. There's the hero, the victim, and the villain. Uh, Jenny's the hero. Her son is the victim. This leaves only one role for you villain. You're just there to tell Jenny that she's wrong. Uh, she knows what the cause of autism is. Vaccines, you don't, even though that's, that's not correct. Still, that's what she believes. She has a series of cures for autism. You don't. And not to be completely politically incorrect, it just doesn't look very good for you know, a guy to go on a show and tell two women that they're wrong in front of a studio audience of 100% women. <laughs> it was a, a loser. Um, fortunately, I didn't go on that show, but um, I thought about it.
1: In the book, you say that Debating the undebatable is worthwhile. What do you mean by that? And what is the importance of this in the age of digital media?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, it's my opinion. I don't know if I'm right about this. Certainly Richard Dawkins, who is a far more accomplished scientist than I am, doesn't agree with this point of view. Um, But... um, do you debate the undebatable, the scientifically undebatable? So, so do you debate somebody who um, who's an anti-vaccine activist on a on a national news show? Do you debate somebody who believes in homeopathy even for disorders for which there actually are conventional treatments? I mean, do you debate um, someone who's a, a creationist? Do you debate a Holocaust denier? And and I my initial feeling on this was was that Dr. Richard Dawkins' feeling, which was don't, because all it does is it sort of raises the level of respectability of the other side. It gives oxygen to to another side that needs it badly. Um, but I, I've I've come around on that after watching people like Michael Shermer debate uh, Mark Weber, who's a Holocaust, and I are watching uh, um, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, debate Ken Ham at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. I mean, those those YouTube videos of those debates have had millions of viewers, and and as I watched that those debates, I, I really learned a lot about those issues. Similarly, when when uh, Joe Schwartz debated uh, Andre Sain, who's a homeopath at McGill University, I learned. a a lot about about homeopathy and how one would debate it if you if you could. so I do think it, 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 the, the debater, uh, on the side of science has to sort of look beyond the person they're debating who obviously they're not going to convince or in the case of Michael Shermer look beyond the the uh, people that are in front of them Shermer did this debate at the Institute for historical review which is basically just the center of Holocaust denialism in uh, Newport uh, Beach California and and look at beyond that and, and think how am I going to be viewed if this is on YouTube and same thing if you're on chat rooms I, often if you're in a chat room and you you know you provide information that is counter to, to the bad information that's out there although you're not going to convince that person. You do provide information to others. So I do think it's worth it. I just think emotionally it's really hard to do.
1: Can you talk a bit about some of your experiences on late night TV? Yes. I've been on, see, see I get up very early in the morning, so I would never survive
0: on late night TV. The good news is the Colbert report is actually taped a bunch earlier. So, um, it's actually not, it was not for me late night. Yeah. So I was on the Colbert report a couple times. Um, and I think, I think we need to do that. I think as scientists, we need to do that. First of all, there is no group that has been better at defending science than, than the, the comedians. So the comedians, they're, 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 uh, they're skeptics. They're trained to, to see a nonsense and to react to it. So people like Penn and Teller, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, Jimmy Kimmel have all been excellent on science and, and confronting, frankly, science denialism and scientific illiteracy, so to their credit. So I do think scientists need to do that, even though it's incredibly, uncomfortable I, I had to um the first time i was on the colbert rapport um you know colbert meets with you uh backstage and he he's great and he tells you um that he's going to play a character that he is um that he's not going to step out of character that he needs you to attack him he needs you to attack that character realize you're not attacking him you're just character- attacking a character he plays frankly he says i believe you I, I agree with you because his father, as it turns out, uh, was a doctor who had an expertise in infectious diseases and immunology in, in, in the South, uh, in South Carolina, where uh, Stephen Colbert grew up, and uh, so he's very sympathetic to science. And, and you just have to be able to sort of hang in there for that. Although the second time I was in the Colbert Report w- was the hardest time. I mean, the last question he asked me, he said, "Well, so you know, you're in the pocket of industry. How do you respond to it?" Because you know, when uh, when we created the rotavirus vaccine at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, you know we weren't going to make that in our lab. Only uh, only uh, the uh, pharmaceutical industry has the resources and expertise to actually do the, the research and development that, that could make that a, a product. And so, um, you know, so he, he asked me that question. It's a question I commonly get asked. And, um, you know, I saw, so my first answer when he said, you know, you're in the pocket of the industry, I said, you know, at Children's Hospital, we're not in the pocket of the industry. We're in, if anything, we're in the pocket of children because we do these good things for children. And the studio audience booed. So there's like a couple hundred people loudly booed booing on national television. Not a very good feeling. Um, But he was great Colbert. He gave me a second chance. He said uh, that's not the answer you want We'll try this again. We're going to go out with this answer, and so he asked me the question a second time, and I said, "You know, you can't on the one hand praise vaccines for being safe and effective, and not praise those who make them safe and effective." And then I did something you're specifically told never to do, which is I looked at the studio audience and I said, "Was that any better?" And they cheered. And then when it was in the final uh, cut, because it's not a live show, it's live tape, as they say, so it's edited. Um, you had uh, basically me answering that question that way, and then essentially saying something nice about the pharmaceutical industry, or at least vaccine makers, and uh, then people cheering, which probably has never happened before. But when I was out of the the, uh, the studio, I asked the associate producer, "Why did people boo when I said, you know, that we were in, that I was in the pocket uh, of children?" And she said that that people like you don't realize that you're on a comedy show. When you said you were in the pocket of children, it made you sound like a pedophile. <laughs> I can safely say I didn't never imagine that when we were um, taking the cab back to the train station in New York to go back to Philadelphia that night. My wife and daughter were with me and I said to them, you know, could you ever imagine that that's how people would have interpreted that? And my daughter said, yeah, I imagine. That's why I booed.
1: (laughs) Can you talk a bit about uh, Andrew Wakefield? Even though he's been discredited, people still refer to his work. Can you talk about this and why people still believe it?
0: So, so the nicest thing you could say about Andrew Wakefield that w- was that when he published his paper in 1998 in the journal Lancet, claiming that the combination MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism, that he raised the hypothesis. Now, the, the paper consisted of 12 children, eight of whom had autism and whose autism symptoms developed within a month of, of getting that vaccine. Now, at the time, the incidence of autism in the United Kingdom was roughly one per 2,000 children. About 90% of children got the MMR vaccine. Most children with autism were, were diagnosed between one and two years of age, which is roughly when they got the vaccine. So statistically, you would have expected that every year about 300 children would develop signs and symptoms of autism within a month of getting the vaccine unless the vaccine prevented autism, which it didn't. It only prevented measles, mumps, rubella infection. And he sort of built this, this uh, his hypothesis on a series of, frankly, impossible events events, you know, that the MMR vaccine overwhelmed the immune system, that measles vaccine virus destroyed the intestine, that that allowed brain-damaging proteins to enter the lymphatics and bloodstream and cross an intact blood-brain barrier and cause autism, none of which made any sense, for which he had no evidence. And as it turns out, he actually misrepresented clinical and biological data anyway. So it was, it was the... the Frankly, the, the paper was in many ways a fraud. Um, but in any case, you could argue in best case scenario, he raised the hypothesis. And, and, so, and so people responded. I mean, the academic community responded, the public health community responded by doing studies, looking at children who did or didn't get that vaccine, making sure you controlled for other things like uh, socioeconomic background, a healthcare-seeking behavior, medical background, so you could isolate the effect of that one variable, which is to say receipt of the MMR vaccine. And when that study was done over and over again, now 17 Times in seven different uh, countries on three different continents involving now millions of children, the results have always been the same. MMR doesn't cause autism. Still, he persists. He persists in that belief. And and I think what draws some people to him, and not many, I, I really do think he's been marginalized at this point, even though he's apparently now dating Elle McPherson, um, <laughs> you know, the Australian actress and model. Um, after having divorced his long-suffering wife, Carmel, I mean, after she puts up with all of this stuff for like two decades, he then, you know, sort of jettisons her for this uh, actress and model. But in any case, um, you know, he, uh, he, 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 I think to some people represents kind of a guru, you know, that, 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 that you know, they, they, he's, he's immutable in his belief. He's unchanging in his belief, whereas science, you know, is constantly sort of questioning itself and, and moving forward in fits and starts. People like him, it's for two, at least a segment of the population are, um, are attractive like Mehmet Oz or Deepak Chopra because they don't express doubt. Express they come off as a guru. We like that. We like certainty when often we know there's none, I think, or little. I think, you know, if you ask people whether we'll know more about science and medicine 100 years from now than than we know, I think everybody would say yes. But when it comes to your disease, your problem, you'd like to believe that we know everything we need to know right now, even when that's often not the case.
1: Now, you were actually called to testify in a congressional hearing opposite Wakefield, right? Can you talk a bit about this?
0: Yeah, that's right. It was in uh, in uh, two thousand. It was Dan Burton's uh, committee hearing the Office of Government Reform. Burton's uh, grandson uh, had been diagnosed with autism. Burton was of the belief that the autism was caused by a vaccine, and he sort of set up a series of doctors, including Andrew Wakefield, to sort of support that belief. But you know, the the uh, the Democratic uh, uh, majority, uh, the Democratic minority, had at that time was Henry Waxman, who was a, a very much pro-science, very much good science, very supportive of the N- the National Institutes of Health. So he insisted that the other panels consist of, you know, real scientists. So um, I had a chance to watch this play out. I, it was it was really demoralizing. I mean, you'd like to believe that. I don't know why you'd like to believe. Well, you'd like to believe it, even though, you know, at some level, it's not true that, you know, that, that when they have these congressional hearings, that it's about getting information to help um, best form policy that can best uh, help the public. But that's really not what this was. This was a circus. It was a show. Dan Burton was running the show. He believed that vaccines caused autism and that's what he wanted this show to be. Uh, The jury in this case was the American public. And and when you watch the way it all played out, it was pretty demoralizing uh, because Dan, Burton didn't care what the other side had to say or said another way, the side that supported science. He was just going to try and get his point of view out there. uh, The science be damned. And it was uh, hard to watch. Certainly the the public didn't benefit from all the money that was spent on that uh, committee hearing.
1: What do you mean when you say in your book that it can be a godsend to have someone like Wakefield on the other side? Right. So I think, you know,
0: Andrew Wakefield wasn't just wrong. He was fraudulent wrong. I mean, he misrepresented clinical and biological data. He, unknown to his co-authors, had received hundreds of thousands of dollars to basically launder legal claims through a a medical journal. And I think when that all came to light, uh, his paper was retracted. Uh, Frankly, frankly, more for the, the, um, you know, the ethical violations of that paper than from the data. When you think about it, you know, there's, there's 6,500 medical and scientific journals in the world. There's 4,000 medical and scientific papers published every day in the world's literature. And so they follow, not surprisingly, a bell-shaped curve. Some studies are excellent. Some are, are, you know, awful and most are more or less mediocre. You really have to work to get a paper retracted. I mean, you have to basically be fraudulent to get a paper retracted, which is what he was. So I think the, the media rejected him, uh, frankly, by, you know, 2011. I think his last farewell on the stage of mainstream media was on Andrew St. Cooper's 360, where Cooper really tore into him. And since then, he's been marginalized. I mean, he'll appear on, you know, places like the Alex Jones show, you know, this sort of rabid conspiracy theorist show. But um, but for the most part, he's been rejected by mainstream media. So I think that's that's good. I'm not so sure it would have worked that way had he not been fraudulent.
1: Now, you've kind of put yourself in the crosshairs of the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, you've said that you've had angry letters, calls for your firing, and even death threats. Can you talk a bit about this?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that, um, that when you put yourself into the middle of a cultural controversy, you're going if not in this case, a scientific controversy, you're going to get pushback. Um, and it can get really mean. I've certainly been physically harassed uh, while walking into a CDC meeting. I've had three, well, at least what the FBI considered to be legitimate death threats. Um, and so um, you have to decide whether or not you want to uh, live with that. And um, uh, for me, it's not a choice. I- I'm compelled to do this because there's not a year that goes by in our hospital. We-, we don't see a child admitted who... Uh, who either suffers from or dies from a vaccine-preventable disease. Invariably, it's because the parent chose not to vaccinate them. Invariably, it's because they got bad information from these anti-vaccine websites. So you have to fight against this. I mean, it's just the right thing to do, and you and so you have to do it, because um, otherwise, you're leaving these children vulnerable, and that's just unconscionable. So so be it. I, I don't think that... Um, that they're going to kill me. Um, if they are, they're not going to give me a heads up first, which is what I guess uh, is, is, comes to me in these pretty much weekly emails that I get from people that have called me pretty much everything from Satan to, you know, the usual uh, not, Nazi analogies.
1: How much, how much hate mail would you say you get on, on, a, on a monthly basis out of curiosity? it's actually getting better.
0: Um, It used to to be on a daily basis. I I would say now, yeah, maybe it's a few every month that I get. And I print them out and I put them in my hate mail file just in case something bad happens. My wife knows where the hate mail file, so this can be a lead for people. But I I honestly don't think this is going to happen. I'm sure I'm working on a lot of denial. But I mean, how many sort of pro-vaccine people have been killed by the anti-vaccine? movement? I think that answer is none. So I think I'm good.
1: Well, I would like for you to offer some advice uh, to some of the listeners who may not come from a scientific background um listeners who may have friends or family members pushing anti-vaccine propaganda on them listeners who may see anti-vaccine articles being shared all over their friends uh, uh, social media accounts uh listeners who may have developed a little bit of a, a concern about um are some of these vaccines bad uh where can they go to find unbiased reliable information to ease their mind
0: so so i think that that um professional groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I think, you know, hospitals and universities, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Mayo Clinic, and others um, have good information about uh, health and medicine and science. I I think in order to reject things like vaccines, frankly, you have to be a conspiracy theorist. Uh, You have to believe that thousands and thousands of, of clinicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and researchers are all sort of in league simply to line their pockets and that they've been willing to lie about vaccine efficacy and vaccine safety for decades, which, you know, is just a little hard to believe, at least it should be hard to believe. Um, but I think, I think, um, you know, the other thing is, is when you go to these sites that sort of make these outrageous claims, that um, they're invariably selling something, you know, whether it's 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 medicines to treat autism or to treat other things to which medicine has little to offer. Um, and you know, so I think that that uh, you should be very suspicious of that. I, I do think it's, it's reasonable to be skeptical about vaccines as it's reasonable to be skeptical about anything you put in your body. So educate yourself, but uh, that should allow you to to be able to ask much better questions to your healthcare professional and uh, and, and expect uh, good answers from your healthcare professional. Certainly vaccines, like any medical product, are not absolutely safe, but, you know, the benefits of the vaccines clearly and definitively outweigh their risks, and um, so this should be able to enable you to ask better questions. But I I do think really to to reject vaccines or to reject evolution or to reject... uh, um, climate change frankly you have to be a conspiracy theorist and uh you know there's no fighting that you know, if, if you if you believe that the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, which advises the CDC or, the, or the, the so-called Vaccine-Related Biological Product Approval Committee, which advises the FDA on vaccines, that those two groups are just deeply in the pocket of the industry, well, if that's true, then in theory, they know something you don't. They know that vaccines really aren't safe. They know that vaccines really aren't effective. Well, that's true. Why do they vaccinate their children or their grandchildren? Because they all do. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if, right. you, if you actually interview people who are on these committees and I was on that committee for five years at the the advisory committee for immunization practices. Now I'm on the the FDA committee. Um, You know, these people are all sort of, you know, justly well-trained with an expertise and experience in in that particular field. And and they're also vaccinating their own children. So that should tell you everything you need to
1: know. Well, Paul, I've taken up a lot of time, uh, a lot of your time today. Uh, My final question for you is what are you working on now?
0: Um, so I'm actually working on another book that's, um, it's kind of like, uh, I think the pendulum in medicine has swung too far in overdiagnosis and overtreatment. Um, and so I'm trying to um, write a book that uh, goes sort of, the 20 things that that I think is advice that you're soon going to be hearing but don't hear yet. So things like don't treat fever because fever is an important part of the immune response or you don't have to finish your antibiotic course. Why have a, a set amount of time that's determined at the beginning of illness when in fact, once you start to feel better, you can assume that you have treated your infection which is generally true. Um, you know, the vitamin D craze which i think frankly is not just misguided but is a hoax i think suddenly half the country's vitamin d deficient. that's not true and and those sorts of things that's a um a sort of skeptical book about about i think where medicine has overreached in some way
1: that sounds great uh when it's finished i'd love to love to have you back on the show um i'd like to thank you again for being on the show today i really enjoyed it and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you take care thank you jeremy